welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's good friend of the program, Adam Spinella. One of my favorite human beings that does basketball content on the internet. Adam, what's going on, buddy? How are things? Uh, what a do, baby. So good to be here with you. Uh, you know, nothing going on in the basketball world in July, right? Just free agency and summer league and, you know, everything else known to Peach man. Jam. Peach Jam FIBA uh, out there for the, you know, the youth tournaments, U17 wrapping up a few days ago. Just a lot of basketball, a lot of fun with it, but a lot to discuss. And I'm very appreciative of you having me back on here to, to be someone to break down a lot of what's going on. Well, and we've also got like Gigi Jackson news, yeah. who now it looks like is probably a 2023 draft prospect as opposed to 2024. Uh, we've got, you know, DeAndre Ayton going live now. We have Kevin Durant trade rumors. We have Donovan Mitchell. Like, it seems like trade rumors that are like live right now as opposed to the Durant ones, which seem a bit more dormant uh, based on the way that it started. Oh, yeah. By the way, we got hockey. Look, look at this. Sidney Crosby. Really good at hockey. He saved hockey in Pittsburgh again by making sure that the team signed Evgeny Malkin. So let's go. We're rolling, baby. Yeah. But what? let's talk about DeAndre. Because the DeAndre Ayton news, we're recording this Thursday night, Adam's time. Mm -hmm. uh, it is currently Friday morning. This is going to go live on Saturday morning in the United States. DeAndre Ayton just signed his max his max offer sheet with the indiana pacers within 10 minutes the phoenix suns have leaked that they're matching basically so let's all of this is done now <laughs> and that's the important part all of this is done and all of this is now put to rest for at least six months until January 15th is the date that DeAndre can be traded. I would imagine they're going to try and bring him back into the fold and act like nothing happened here. How, what is your reaction first and foremost to the way that the Phoenix Suns handled this? Because I think that we, we understand the logic behind why they handled it this way. I just don't know that I agree. So let, let's just get open thoughts on the table first. What, what, what is your reaction to the way the Phoenix Suns have handled the DeAndre Ayton contract negotiations? It's just been a strange year, Sam, with DeAndre Ayton and the saga going there because I thought he was fantastic in the NBA Finals last year. And moving into the yeah. summer where there's contract negotiations for an extension, I figure you, know, you want to maximize Chris Paul's remaining years, keep Devin Booker happy by keeping the other best young prospect and player that you have on your roster and locking them up long-term. And now is the time to go in and double down on that core. And they just didn't want to pull the trigger. Um, I'm not as intimately involved with, you know, what we hear in the media is legitimate. What isn't, I, I don't know how much of it is smoke and how much of it is actually fire, but with Phoenix not wanting to go to a, a max offer sheet, you know, there were a lot of rumblings now about, What's Monty's relationship going to be like with DeAndre Ayton? How is he viewed in the organization? Does Sarver have an issue with paying some of these guys big, big money? Um, I think at the end of the day, like matching Ayton is 100% the right thing to do. But the public discourse of how we got here is going to be fascinating to see how that bleeds over into the future with Ayton in Phoenix. Because it certainly hasn't, publicly at least, been the smoothest uh, road over the last year from, you know, 
wrapping up the NBA finals to get to this point. I, again, I think it's the right move for Phoenix to make just questioning kind of how we got here. Could it have been handled a little bit differently? So the optics look better for everybody involved. Yeah. Look, so you mentioned the finals last year. He looked really good. I thought he looked great against Nikola Jokic last year in the playoffs as well in that second round series. Look, Jokic dropped 25 points, 13 rebounds, and six assists per game in that series. He also did it on 47% shooting, 28% from three, 68% from the foul line. Just drastically lower numbers in terms of efficiency than what we're used to seeing from Nikola Jokic. And in large part, it was because DeAndre did a great job on him defensively in that series. You know, DeAndre had 14 points, 11 rebounds. He shot 61% from the field. Like, not enormous numbers, but I would argue that Given the roles, given the responsibilities, DeAndre basically played Jokic to a stalemate in that series. And that's why the Suns were able to sweep Denver. Uh, it wasn't just like a, oh, yeah, like they beat them in a tough, hard played seven game series. It was, oh, no, this was just absolute curtains from the jump, it felt like. And it was in large part because of DeAndre Ayton. So, I find it weird that it wasn't just one playoff series. He was great in the playoffs this year against the Pelicans before falling off of a cliff for some strange reason against Dallas. And he's got like three or four really good playoff series now. And I just don't know what the benefit is to handling it this way. I know what James Jones's argument would be, though. From the jump, he told uh, the Athletics' Sam Amick that they're a little bit worried about having multiple designated extensions for rookie-scale players on their books. They have Devin Booker already. If they sign DeAndre Ayton to that deal, they then have two, and they can't bring in another one unless they trade one of those, those two players. The thing is that at the end of the day, you're probably going to have to move one of those two guys anyway to bring in a designated, another designated rookie extension. And you are allowed to bring one in. Uh, you're allowed to have one that you drafted, one that you traded for. You can't have two that you traded for uh, in terms of the CBA. So it's a little bit bizarre that they valued that this much. I guess that I'm struggling with why wasn't there a compromise to be made at like, you know, four years, you know, a full four years, 140 from the Suns or something like that, you know, a little bit, or no, I guess it couldn't be four years, 140 or no, it could be because they would give 8% raises versus 5% raises. Yeah. So like, why wouldn't you do, you know, four years, 8% raises? versus four years five percent raises i'm i don't know i I think the whole thing is the whole thing was handled very bizarrely maybe it is true that like the representation just wouldn't sit down unless it was a full five-year max but i i find that hard to believe logically just given um given what we know yeah and, and i struggle with the you know the perception that it might be something to do with wanting to overpay a center or lock in somebody like that long term just based on his positionality you know anchoring yourself to a certain style of play because a Aiden's proven to be very very successful in the style of play that he brings to the table 
And B, if you're worried about not having a late game option that can switch, that can do some different things on the perimeter, be a little bit more uh, fluid athletically when you're matching up with some of those guys, then, you know, don't decline Jalen Smith's option after year two. Like a lot of the synergy of some of the different moves that they might have don't necessarily add up where like if you're really worried about committing to that type of style, like why is yeah. Bismack Biombo the guy you're signing off the street in February when you need another body? Like I, I think that it works. They know it works. There's just there was something going on that I don't really know how to put my finger on it, but it's been really strange to watch this unfold. Well and I, I think that what this shows is the Suns have hit a lot of really big decisions. Right. They have nailed the Devin Booker selection under Ryan McDonough. They nailed the Chris Paul trade under James Jones, if I remember correctly. I believe that was a James Jones decision. Yes. Yeah. Should have been. If, if I remember correctly, I believe it was James yeah. Jones decision. Um, nailed the Mikael Bridges pick, which again, I believe was McDonough era. But they also now admittedly don't put a lot of assets into scouting and into pre-draft stuff they have made some strange decisions on the margins like not going in at the deadline and trying to acquire a guy that will help you create offense uh in case of a chris paul injury in case of x y and z right um to me that's what i would have done i would have tried to go and get an eric gordon at the deadline i would have tried to go and get um someone that could have been a real option with size who can bring defensive value off of the bench. Um, I think that this team misses on the margins a bit more regularly than what you would hope for, but it also shows just like the margin for error is enormous. When you have Chris Paul and Devin Booker and Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton and the Suns are still a contender. Like they are still a legit title contender because they've matched this deal. I think matching this deal is literally the only thing they can do. And if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, they just got a guy that they weren't get comfortable giving five years to uh, for a pretty significant discount uh, in terms of money. It's just that you're also taking probably a real discount in terms of player control. Yeah. And to me, the discount in player control does not exceed the discount in um or the discount in player control, uh, yeah, does not exceed the discount that you're taking in terms of money moving forward. Yeah, yeah the pr- I mean, the price you pay is making Aiton unhappy and not wanting yeah, that to too. really buy into the process too. And, and in Phoenix, like, like Chris Paul's not going to be around forever, and there's going to be a moment when the torch gets passed a lot more to Booker, and with that, more offensive responsibility on the daily for Aiton. You need a guy who's going to buy in to be part of the organization. Uh, you know, this is a four-year deal, but... I believe it's only what is it six months or is it one year until he uh, can agree on the on the trade? Uh, he can get traded in six months on January fifteenth. He has veto power for a year on a trade, uh, and they can't trade him to the Pacers for the next year. Right. So I think there's a part of this process too where you know. Guys who are signed to max level or close to max level contracts do have a lot of power. And we've seen it time and time again where they can take the money or, you know, re-sign with the team that they're on. And then when they decide it's time to move on, kind of flex their muscle a little bit and try to renegotiate their exit to a, a team of their control. Uh, free agency yep. is not necessarily 
always about when your contract expires anymore. It's just when you want out of your current situation. And, you know, I I think that that's certainly something that the Suns have to be mindful of now. Like, yes, you've matched, you've cleared the first hurdle for the first six months to a year here that you want to go through, but there's still work to be done to mend some of those fences and make sure that, you know, relationship wise, everything is where it needs to be. So that Aiton wants to be in Phoenix long-term. Yeah. And, Look, here, here's the thing. So, like, I've seen some speculation about, like, how how will Monty Morris or not Monty Morris? My God, Monty Williams react to all of this. It seems like Monty, like the last time we saw DeAndre Ayton and Monty w- Williams on the floor together, Monty looked pretty frustrated with DeAndre. DeAndre didn't want to go back in, mm-hmm. apparently, according to reports, yeah. etc. I, I don't want to even. I, I don't want to get into what I know and don't know because I don't know. Um, what the actual deal is that happened there. The thing about Monty Williams, if you listen to literally anyone ever talk about Monty Williams in basketball, it's that he is like the best human being on planet earth. I have zero doubts that if there is any coach in basketball that can bring someone back into the fold after a situation like this, it probably is Monty Williams. And Monty Williams could have been frustrated with DeAndre at that moment, could have felt X, Y, and Z way. The thing is that just you listen to players talk about the guy. You listen to anyone who's ever been around him in an organization. I'm not real worried about them bringing him back into the fold. I just worry. I guess I worry more about like where this says Phoenix is going to go you know, in the post Chris Paul era, um, are they going to continue to make poor decisions on the margins? Are they going to continue to make strange uh, choices on the margins? But at the end of the day, like this, this is fine, right? Yeah. Like this, th- this is the end result here is that Phoenix keeps their contention window open for the next two years with Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, Jay Crowder, yeah. X, Y, and Z else on the roster. Yeah, right? and and it's it's kind of the inevitable outcome here because when you have Chris Paul and only a finite number of years left, you have to go in for it. Uh, I mean, it. Yeah, you know, you're kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit to put some, uh, you know, some pressure on Sarver to pay up and see what the tax is going to be like and and how that factors into Cam Johnson moving forward. So like, there's still decisions yeah. to be made that aren't nece- like that one's not necessarily on the margins. That's that's pretty crucial to the construct yeah. of the team, but like the way that you can overcome a missing on one of those moves is by nailing everything around the margins. And because Phoenix hasn't, that puts a lot more pressure on the Cam Johnson decision to be done the right way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Cause I, uh, the thing that's important to remember is that the Suns were the only 60 win team in the NBA last year. And I know that they flamed out spectacularly in a seven game series to one of the three best players on planet earth and Luka Doncic. And that final game seven that we saw them in was a nightmare of epic proportions, but like this is still an absolutely exceptional team. And this is not a situation like the Utah jazz where they didn't have any playoff success. They literally just made the finals in 2021. Like, and they They're were in a good spot in, in Luca. Like it was just a Luca buzzsaw. That game seven was like, as un, unlike anything I've ever, like I will remember that game for the rest of my life because I, I got maybe eight or 10 text messages from buddies of mine who barely watched the NBA. They're just like, what is going on right now? How, how, 
how is this even it was just an insane shooting display a lack of anything from i've never seen anything like that before Okay, so the reason I had you on was to talk about Summer League more than to talk about the DeAndre Ayton thing. It just happened while we were talking or while we were about to record. I will ask you a very simple question here to start. Who do you think has been the best player at Summer League? Not the best rookie, not the best all around, you know, everything. The best player at Summer League, point blank. I'm going to go Quentin Grimes for the Knicks. He's been great. Adam. That would be my answer too. That's it. I think it's been Quentin Grimes. Continue, please. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously he's he's scoring the ball really well. The the Knicks as a whole have great defensive intensity that they've shown out in yeah. Las Vegas. That's been impressive to me, top to bottom. But Grimes is a, a focal point of that because of his versatility guarding different spots on the wing. Really smart help defender. But I'm always curious about what we see in summer league is a translatability to the NBA game, right? And the most important thing for guys whose role might be a little bit more complimentary is knowing how to pick their spots. A lot of times you get to the summer league and teams will turn over the keys to somebody who might not normally get to drive the car during the regular season. I think that New York is kind of doing that, but more importantly, Grimes seems to know when to go and when to move that thing, when to let somebody else get involved, when to be a spot up threat, like the timing of everything that he's given on the offensive end combined with what we know he does defensively. He just gets in there, makes an impact, gets out of there. And, and it's incredibly impressive. Like I think he's he's just very, very ready for whatever type of role it is that the Knicks are gonna gonna ask of him. Isn't Quentin Grimes the coolest story to yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, from Kansas. Quentin Grimes uh, yeah. was a for people who don't know, Quentin Grimes was a top five, top six recruit in the country. Committed to Kansas, played well opening night, really struggled, really, really struggled the rest of the year at Kansas. Declared for the draft, got told, look, you'll probably be like a second round pick. You might go undrafted. He decides to transfer to Houston. And this whole time, throughout the entirety of his career up until that point, Quentin Grimes was a lead guard. Like you can say that he was kind of a combo, maybe, but especially over the last two years of his high school career, he transitioned into being a lead. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a lot of the skills that we see that he developed when he was younger pop up in his game now. But in order to be successful at the college level, he had to adapt, he had to adjust, and he had to learn new skills. He had to overcome real adversity And he did that at Houston. He transitioned from being like a primary lead guard ball handler to being more of a wing at Houston and being like a three and D guy. He turned himself into the best player in the AAC, the best player on uh, a top two seeded Houston team, if I remember correctly, and goes in the first round and has continued to showcase a lot of the skills that he learned at Houston as a three and D guy because he had to overcome that adversity. I think that that really helped him 
in his rookie year, overcoming that rookie wall. There was never a point I felt like last year where I saw Quentin on the court, even as a rookie, where he was totally overwhelmed. There were times in his freshman year at Kansas when he was a teenager, five-star kid, one of the best players in the country, according to recruiting rankings. And according to me, I loved Quentin Grimes coming out of high school. He looked overwhelmed at times in Kansas and looked like he was moving too fast. I think because he overcame that adversity, he really has become someone who is capable of scaling those difficult moments. And now you see it at summer league where when he's comfortable, we're seeing more and more of the skill set that he had previously start to leak into his game while also taking a lot of the lessons that he's learned from the development on his wing skills, his three and D ability and always having those to fall back on. It's a great story. And I think it goes, it goes to show like, you know, not everybody's ready at the same time, whether you're a five star or two star, like you've got to walk the walk your own path and go through the journey that you need to, to prepare yourself for the NBA. Houston ended up being the perfect fit for him. It taught him off ball skills. I, I loved his college tape, his final year at Houston like running off of screens, knocking down threes, aggressive defense. He blocked a ton of jump shots, smart rotations from the weak side, like did all of these things well. And this is a great 3 and D guy. And then you know in the back of your head, he used to be able to handle and do a lot of this stuff off the bounce. If he can tap into that a little bit more, he's a really versatile guy moving forward to the NBA. And I think a lesson to take away from that is to value guys who have been able to at least perform in different roles, whether they've been excellent in both but at least have the ability to, to do both. Like I think back to Austin Reeves, another guy who was a yeah. little bit of a sleeper in some regard, like the role that he played at uh, Wichita state way different than what he played at Oklahoma. And now he's you know playing for the Los Angeles Lakers back in that more scalable role that he had at Wichita state. But you know that he can do a little bit off the bounce when he's chased off the, the three point line, because that's, the role that he had to play a little bit more at Oklahoma. So there's, there's a little bit of that well-rounded game to it that I think Grimes has really been able to put on display in summer league right now. That's just, it's really comforting to show that he can make an impact in many different ways when he's on the floor. I totally agree with you. Uh, I've been incredibly impressed. and, And I guess that I would raise this question. If you're Utah and, you know, there's obviously Donovan Mitchell rumors flying around about the Knicks, about Utah. I'm trying very hard to get Quentin Grimes. Like Quentin Grimes among, outside of R.J. Barrett, who I still really believe in. I really like R.J. Me too. Quentin Grimes for me is the get. Like whatever you want to say it. Like among Obi Toppin, among Emmanuel Quickly, all those other really interesting, albeit, um, but younger guys on this Knicks roster that are good. And I really like Deuce McBride. I've been a fan of Cam Reddish, maybe more than some people are. Uh, I'm trying to make Quentin Grimes like the young player I'm prioritizing. I'm trying to get as many draft picks as I can. I'm trying to get Quentin Grimes. I'm trying to make sure it's Evan Fournier as opposed to Julius Randle attached in the deal. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, and, and it helps for Utah to be able to shape their roster in many different ways if they were to go that path, because you can't have too many wings who can shoot it and are smart playmakers and good defenders. Like there's just there's no such thing as an excess of those guys. I mean, Grimes isn't as big as some. He's only about like six five, maybe six six. Uh, you'd yeah. like to have a little bit more size for versatility to play two through four there. 
but I think he can guard one through three and be just fine. And, and he's just, he's a very, very solid, steady, dependable hand that goes a long way yeah. when you're going to be cast in the type of role that he's going to have to play. Yeah. I think that's dead on. Um, I, I will be very interested to see. I don't think the Knicks will take like a hard line. Like we absolutely will not include Quentin Grimes in a yeah. Donovan Mitchell deal. I don't think you can do that, especially if you maybe have taken a hard line on not including RJ Barrett. Uh, if I was Utah, I would say Quentin Grimes is probably my get uh, out of their young guys, which is maybe not what like the consensus is. Like I know a lot of people really like Toppin. I know a lot of people really like quickly. Grimes is my guy. I, I would say among that group. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the rookies because I think that everyone wants to hear what we think of all of the young guys that played at summer league. Right. Let's start with the number one overall pick Paula Bancaro. Just everything you would anticipate, everything you would expect, right? Yeah, he was great. Um, I, I hope that there's a, a little bit of like swallowing our words uh, somewhat going on about like the defensive concerns in certain areas. Like I know he still has some questions about exactly what position he guards full time, but he's productive on that end of the floor. When he's dialed in and he wants to play on that end, I, I think he's pretty solid. Um, willing passer, some of the turnover stuff, the quickness of the decisions obviously has to get better but like we're talking about a guy who lethal scorer in isolations like just the pace that he plays with the understanding the feel is so advanced for somebody of his age and I think Orlando nailed this not just in the sense that he looks really good but he's exactly the type of player that you look at the rest of this roster and you say we have so many ways to play around this and really succeed that uh, that the sky's kind of the limit for for where we're at I mean being me and Paolo Bancaro and being thrown in there to be kind of the number one option in summer league and to play as well as he did in just those two games to the point where Orlando said, screw it, like shut it down. We, we don't, we don't want him getting hurt. That's an incredible compliment to a type of, uh, of basketball mind that he is to be able to come in and, and read defenses the way he has right away. Yeah. So this is why I said from like, day one uh, of like the draft cycle uh, or even like June 1st, right? When everyone really starts paying attention to the draft cycle. I love all of these prospects at the top four. Yeah, I like them so much. I think they're all really, really high level prospects because even though I ended up with Chet at number one, I really don't want to make it a thing where it's like, oh no, like, you know, you have your guy, you've picked another guy. No, I really like all of these guys. Yeah. I think Paulo's really great. And I think Paulo is about to be an awesome, awesome NBA player just because of the intersection of his size and his skill. I mean, you saw that on display from the jump, like the jump from college to summer league in terms of athleticism, strength, size, it's pretty real. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite the jump from college to the NBA, but it's a good middle ground, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, want to see what Paulo looks like against the biggest, longest, most athletic guys, right? In terms of his efficiency, because the one thing we did see that was a little bit concerning from Paulo was turnovers and just some like shitty shots from time to time. Yeah. But that's just like such small potatoes at the end of the day, right? Um, Paulo's intelligence level, the thing that I said pre-draft as well, is the passing. I mean, 
I, I really think people so drastically underplayed how incredible Paulo Bancaro is as a passer. Mm-hmm. He is such a smart, intuitive, reactive player on that end. Um, the way that he sees the court is absolutely phenomenal. I do have my worries on defense still. He's always been a smart guy who is, you know, around the right places and who knows where to rotate. It's just engagement. Like he needs to be engaged and locked in all the time. Uh, you can't take possessions off when you have not great quickness. I don't want to say he's like deficient in terms of lateral quickness, but he doesn't have enough of it to where he can, you know, disengage mentally for five possessions in a row and not get eaten alive a little bit out there at the NBA level. It's some really guys can't really do that, but uh, in the NBA, I think they could. And I think they probably will. If he disengages, um, I don't know. I, I love Paulo. I think he's so good. Uh, he is such a good shot creator. He is. Uh, we saw a lot of the, I loved what Orlando did playing him at the five more often yeah. and using him, both as the screener and as the ball handler in ball screens. And particularly we saw the way that he tries to punish switches. Yes. Uh, he is going to try to punish you in switches every single time that he can. He has a real understanding. Sometimes it takes young guys a little bit more time to understand. Okay. I've got a real advantage here. I've got a real uh, ability that I can take advantage of uh, with my skills, with my power, with my quickness uh, for guards in their case. Paulo innately understands that immediately. He already has it. And I think that he's going to be a very, very good offensive player from the jump day one, probably averages something like 17 points and five assists as a rookie. Yep. Yep. And he's so smart with not just using his physicality, but knowing ways to leverage that to his advantage. Right. So high ball screen comes, he thinks that the team might not try to switch. Like he slips that just a little bit to force switch to create some contact. He loves ducking in and, and playing physically for a, you know, a post up catch kind of at the, yeah. the nail hole or the elbow areas. And he knows how lethal he can be from there because he can see every double team that would come in front of him. Great with spins, very controlled, like just, hard to bump off of his spots. Any rookie in the NBA is going to face consistency issues. It's just how the game goes for a lot of these young guys, right? Anthony Edwards had it a couple of years ago. Jalen Green had it a lot last year as a rookie. Like Everybody goes through those trials and tribulations. Paolo is going to have a lot of that because he's the focal point of this Orlando attack and I think will be from day one. But he's so smart that he's going to be able to, to figure it out and not be overburdened where he can just make the right decision yeah. and trust somebody else. And for every you know eight turnover game that he's going to have, there are also going to be nights where he goes out there and he gets you 30 uh, with maybe you know, six assists and, and gets eight of nine from the free throw line. That just helps you stay in and win some games that are also really, really crucial. So you know, at, at the very early part of his career – Take the bad with the good, but realize that you've got just a special, like, like you said, combination of size and skill and an incredibly, incredibly smart basketball player. No, I think that's set on. Um, let's go to Chet. Yeah. Chet had the phenomenal opening game. Yep. Has had phenomenal moments throughout, I would say. Uh, has had some moments where he's gotten pushed around as well. Like the Kenneth Lofton game was real. Uh He's had some moments where he's gotten pushed around in Vegas as well. What has been your overall, overall reaction to Chet? I mean, it's it's the highs and the lows of things, right? So with Chet, it's I've always tried to take a patient stance with his physicality because he is strong, he is competitive. I think yeah. that you know you and I agree that those are two 
areas that we care more about than necessarily the uh, the overall strength uh, or excuse me the overall size of his 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 body and his physique. I mean, yeah, for a twenty year old, for sure. Yeah, yeah and, and we're seeing a guy right now who played with some confines in a Mark Few offense and system that I think benefited all of the pieces that Few had to put together. It's a motion type scheme, and, and Chet is such a unique piece that his offensive game pops so much more, not just outside of those confines, but with NBA floor spacing. And he's starting to figure out a little bit how to get to spots, when to force the issues, when to do a little bit less. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing for me with um, with Chet long term is going to continue to be, you know, is he the type of guy that is more of a playmaker for others in the half court or more of a scorer? Because that's the one area I see him continuing to try to, um, you know, to try to figure out right now. I love it. You're just getting calls. You're getting <laughs> calls in the middle of the show. It's when great. the wife is away and you don't pick up on the first one, you wonder what's going on. So I, uh, I got to. So let's uh, let's talk chat real quick while Adam figures out what's going on with his wife. Uh, yeah. So here's the thing. Chet Holmgren has averaged 14 points. He's averaged eight rebounds, three blocks, two steals, three assists per game while shooting 42% from three, 48% from the field. If I would have told you those, pre-summer league that that would be his numbers we'd all take them right it's just that like what adam said the extremity of the moments that we see the extreme polarizing nature of his game and of the things that we see on the court with him it ends up skewing the conversation in a lot of different directions, yeah. I think. Uh, there is, with Chet, always evidence of a lot of the things that people had concerns about. You mm-hmm. can leverage him right now. He is so skinny. His lower half is so thin that you can move him around if you need to. Uh, also, he is seven foot tall. He yeah. shoots 42% from three so far in summer league <laughs> and can attack off the break. He can grab and go. He can start your offense. He's a good passer. We've seen, a, I think, yeah. I think the offense has actually been even better than what I expected from the jump in terms of his fluidity off the bounce, in terms of the way that he uses his length to cover ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the defense is going to take time physically. You see all of the anticipatory tools. You see the way that he uses his length. You see the toughness. It's just going to take time because he's so fucking skinny that he's going to get moved. Like it's yeah. going to happen. And and look, like not every team has a Kenneth Lofton in their arsenal that's tailor made to move him in the post, right? Right. Like not a lot of teams can play that way. And and I get sick of hearing the well, how is he going to go against you know Joel Embiid or, or Jokic? Like nobody guards those guys one-on-one in in the world. It's not about his skinniness. It's about how good those other guys are. Like the the reason I brought up in the Paolo segment a little bit more about consistency being key, because I think that's part of what Chet has to figure out in an NBA system where he gets a little bit more responsibility. Like we're seeing Oklahoma City inbound the ball to him and let him bring it up across half court. He wasn't asked to do that at Gonzaga. He could rebound and run with it, but not as an outlet guy that you're trusting to kind of get across and initiate he does less of that in the half court. I think his game yeah. is is best right now between the three-point lines um, and, and really able to get out in that open floor and just create and play. 
I love him out of the pick and pop. I think that's a great area for him right now. And, and I'm really pleased to see his aggression offensively, like the, the confidence, the swagger that he plays with. It's very, very real. Uh, and he shows that on both ends of the floor with, you know, his, his rim protection and, and some of the rotations he makes defensively. But first and, and foremost, the offense has been what's impressive for me. There are going to be nights when it's not necessarily there. And long term, he's going to have to figure out how to solve being guarded by different types of players, right? Some guys that are small, like Keegan Murray did a pretty good job on him uh, in, in the summer league contest that yeah. those guys played. You know, Which, how does- by the way, Keegan's another guy that like we're going to talk about here momentarily, yeah. but a big part of Keegan's game is knowing how to use his leverage, knowing how to use his center of gravity and move guys around. Yes. Much, you know, he's a much more skilled, versatile offensive piece than Kenneth Lofton, but they are similar in that specific way in how they use their lower half and use their center of gravity to move guys around. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And again, I think there's going to be a figuring out process for Chet because at every other level of basketball he's played at, he's just that much taller, longer, more skilled than any guy that can guard him. That's not going to be the case every single night. He has to go through that problem-solving process. So there will be great nights like we saw with the debut. There will be tough nights based on who he has to guard or who guards him. But overall, you bet on the feel, the skill, the shot-making ability. That all seems very, very real and say, this guy's going to live up to the hype. Like I'll just spoil or alert for the rest of this year. I think all of the top six guys have been pretty damn good here through, uh, through the beginning of Las Vegas. Yeah, with one exception. Um, not exception even, just one that I think is raised a couple of questions, but we got a sure. smaller sample on him. Sure. Um, Jabari Smith, number three. Let's just go there. Jabari yeah. has been really great defensively. Yes. I mean, holy shit, defensively has he been good. The switchability, the weak side rim protection, the rotations – but especially the switchability like Houston's just switching every action and they're just like, you know what? Guard out on the perimeter. We want to show what you can do. And he is just swallowing up every guard out there at summer league. Whenever well, and he wants chance. it, he, he wants that yes. type of responsibility. Like how many guys that think that they were going number one overall and end up slipping a, a pick or two. Like there are a lot of different ways that you can handle that for him. It's not just going out there and being the offensive focal point. He wants to prove that he can guard. He wants to play on that end of the floor especially in those games when the shot isn't falling particularly. That's what's impressed me about Jabari. Like the offensive stuff, some questions, some things to dive into, maybe a little bit more, but the consistency on defense, regardless of what goes on on the other end of the floor, like you rarely see that from a guy that has been as highly touted as he has over the last 10 or 12 months. Yeah, no, I agree. And on top of it, offensively, I think there's been some consternation because the shot creation just – looks like what we thought it would look like basically uh it's not polished his handle is still quite loose i think the passing has been a little bit better from time to time than what we've seen uh at auburn particularly but a big part of jabari's value proposition is his spacing and you know ability to consistently knock down shots and up until that last game that he played uh Houston's guards have just been horrible in terms of distribution. Like there's just not another way to say it. They have not done nearly a good enough job of getting him the ball in the right spots where he can be successful um, is what it is, right? Like when Josh Christopher's out there chucking 30 shots every 36 minutes, it's a disaster. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, there are a lot of good, I think the Rockets rookies all look good in some moments and look like they could be a little bit better in a few others, but like I am at the end of the day, just a, an overall really, really big fan of, of how Jabari Smith has defended. And like, that's, I keep coming back to that. The shot is going to fall. He's going to play with guards who put him in good positions. And if you're looking long-term at kind of the pillars of the organization in Houston, Jalen Green and Jabari Smith together is a, a really, really good combo because they complement each other so well. Somebody who wants to guard on one end in the way that Jabari does, and then the floor spacing to be maybe a little bit more of a complementary piece while Jalen plays and the ball in his hands. I'd love to see late clock pick and pops with those guys and ghost actions and all of the different things that X's and O's wise are really smart mind like Silas can do. But um, again, I'm not discouraged by the stuff with Jabari because like you said, I think a lot of us saw this in the pre-draft process as some areas that he needed to continue to work on. It's probably not an issue that's going to get solved in four or five months during a pre-draft process, but it, it is going to be a longer process where he's probably not a you know number one or number two option on an NBA team in his first year or two. He's, he's just a really good floor spacer who defends. And on a night when he goes merc, you know, mercurial from three, like you're winning that game because of him. All right. Let's talk about Keegan Murray. I talked about him a little bit with Caitlin Cooper on the most yes. recent podcast. I uh, don't know that I need to say a lot, but I want to give you the floor to be able to say whatever you want to say about Keegan. I, I every, I'm just more impressed by him every time I see him. Um, really, really, really happy with the way that Keegan is showing the versatility of his offensive game. You know, I don't want to steal the thunder of Caitlin Cooper, who, you know, she was fantastic on the podcast that you had her on uh, a couple days ago. But like the ability that he has to read and adjust to how the defense is playing him in real time is incredibly just important for a rookie to have. Like he's very cerebral. He understands his strengths, how to get to his spots and how to really manufacture that with his physical limitations of not always being the quickest guy on the floor. The the shooting versatility is obviously the thing that stands out the most on the offensive end for how he's played this yeah. summer, running off of staggers, different types of actions, pick and pops, the confidence that he shoots the ball with. Like he he's just he's going to be a thirty-eight to forty percent three point shooter on a very, very consistent basis. He's got great touch and he uses that as a weapon where now he comes in. I you can see the pieces that Sacramento's putting together and understand how it all fits. I I, I think he's pretty dang good on the defensive end too. And that's an area that even I underrated perhaps through the, uh, the pre-draft process. I mean, part of that is just Iowa was kind of a rough place to be a positive defender from time to time. But let's like, be real about it. Iowa's defensive scheme is a nightmare. I've said it for three or four years in a row now. Um, I, I will say this so you don't have to. Um, yeah. I have no idea what the fuck I was doing defensively yeah. a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. They run, they'll like try and run these weird rotations in man coverage. They'll try and run this like two, three zone from time to time, which like they force guys into like the wings are raised up and they force yeah. their centers into like these crazy long rotations. Like, yeah, it's a disaster. Uh, I it, it probably did drastically underrate what Keegan can do defensively because he was a playmaker defensively. The thing for me was always quickness yep. and ability to make consistent, on balance closeouts. Uh, 
here's the thing though like iowa forces these terribly hard long closeouts where like it's probably a little bit harder for him to do it I think there's a long-term kind of philosophical question here to ask of like guys who aren't good at something or don't necessarily show the greatest film in schemes or teams that aren't great at it. You know, is this more about the situation and the environment that they're playing in? Or is it more about the prospect? Because I think there's a lot of circumstances. I can't think of any other off the top of my head right now, but you know, of ways where a guy was a good defender all along, just played in a team where the scheme wasn't great. The, you know, well, the Ben Simmons is a good example. Off yeah, ben Simmons, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's a, a, a great example for it. So I think that there are definitely lessons that I'm already trying to, to learn and apply from what we've seen out of Keegan thus far in summer league. But of all of these guys that are going kind of top five or top six, like he strikes me as the guy who's just not going to have an off night. Uh, and, yeah. and that's, that's really important for, I think what Sacramento wants from their organization right now but also just for dependability long-term. Like that's a really good guy that you want to have on your team. Yeah. I've got a dog on my lap now. So this will be fun. <laughs> Rest of the podcast will, will involve dog on lap. Um, now she's looking up at me. Okay. So next up would be Jade and Ivy. This is probably the one where I've had the most like not a concern. I thought he was a lot better in the second game before he got hurt. Yeah. Uh, the first game I thought was like a little bit of him trying to do too much was a little bit of like loose handle stuff, which concerned me. And it's always concerned me a little bit with Jaden. Like he has that ability to just run around people, which is always really valuable, but he also doesn't have the tightest handle. And I think from time to time in the summer league environment, particularly where a lot of the time he played with two bigs like Isaiah Stewart and Jalen Duran on the court together, uh, when the quarters were a little bit tighter, it was a little bit tougher for him to consistently handle the ball. Yeah. Yeah. I think the forcing is probably something that like a lot of times in summer league, I struggle to try to figure out how much of this is the the team just saying, Hey, go out there and prove you can be a guy. Like, let's see what you look like in that role. Uh, like I think Jaden Hardy in Dallas is a prime example of somebody who through summer league has definitely been forcing. I think that's also like the organizational imperative right now. Like, Hey, this team's built around you going out there to see what you can do. Uh, so there's, there's probably a little bit of a portion of that there in Detroit. Like they're, they want to play through him and see how Duran and Stewart and, and livers and, and a couple of the other important cogs that are out there really play around Jaden, how he involves them. I was impressed with some of the passing reads that he made uh, I know that that's just one area as he gets more pick and roll reps, we're going to have to see more. I think there's there's definitely a feel factor that he needs to be able to play through. And I'm glad that he was able to get a couple of reps here. Um, the injury is incredibly important and fortunate. I think this was going to be an impactful and important few weeks for him down in the summer league. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the same token here, like, I like the flashes that we saw. It was only five quarters. I don't want to overreact to too many of the positives or the negatives from it. Like I, I believe in Ivy. I think that he's an incredibly talented player. I'd rather have a guy that can dribble around somebody than uh, somebody who has to figure out how to create separation and feel like we can teach him the rest. So like there will be time. There will be areas to try to get him to where he needs to be. But just for his sake, kind of disappointed that uh, things have ended a little prematurely. Yeah, and this is a good time to just note the injuries that we unfortunately had throughout Summer League. I mean, he is, doesn't seem serious, which is good. Uh, Shaden Sharp, it seems like, has this – is it a – what is Shaden's shoulder issue? Labrum, I think. 
Yeah, that's what I thought yeah. it was too. Uh, a labrum issue, which is a huge bummer. He absolutely needed as much time as he could get uh, in summer league. Uh, Dyson Daniels rolls an ankle. EJ Liddell obviously tears his ACL, which is just such a, such a, such a, such a shitty situation. Um, yeah, pour one out for EJ uh, in his rookie season, which is very unfortunate. Um, Sohan with San Antonio. Yeah. Sohan with San Antonio. Is that an injury or is that like a weird um, other situation? I can't remember. It was something I think, weird it was a, it. I think it was a COVID thing. And then they mentioned yeah. that he also had a hamstring injury that he was nursing a little bit as well. So uh, I think yeah. there were a couple things going on there. Yeah, so it's just a huge bummer that we didn't necessarily get to see all of the rookies that we would have liked to have seen. Um, Again, Caitlin and I talked a little bit about Ben Matherin, but I'll just give you the floor real quick to talk about Ben. I mean, nothing to add to the conversation that you guys didn't really hit on expertly the last time you were talking. I, I like the flashes of kind of aggression that he has shown. I think his confidence is super, super high. Love him as a shooter and more of a secondary guy. I think in the moments when you know, long-term, he doesn't have a great creating guard next to him on the floor. The offense for the team tends to stall out a little bit. He can be yeah. still a little bit, I don't want to say black hole-ish, but wants to score first and create second, as opposed to having a great balance to it. There are flashes that are incredibly enticing, but he's long, he's athletic, he plays with energy, and he shoots the ball really well. Like I, Every single part of that has been on display in some form or fashion in the, the moments that I've seen from the summer league. Any other rookies that have really stood out to you that you want to talk about? The other rookies that have stood out. I mean, I've been really impressed by Jalen Williams for, for Oklahoma City. Um, yeah, I, I have too. The, this is Santa Clara, Jalen Williams. I hate that I have to continually um, you know, clarify which one I'm going with out of the, the yeah. two Oklahoma City Thunder guys. But he's been fantastic. Uh, very, very real as an efficient offensive guy who can do a little bit of anything and everything. I know we talked on the the intro part of this with Quentin Grimes about, you know, knowing when to pick your spots. And I think that's one area I've been incredibly impressed by Williams with, with Oklahoma City. He knows when to swing the ball and move it to somebody else. He plays off of Josh Giddy really well. He plays off of Chet Holmgren really well. He's great in transition, is a lot more bursty of an athlete than – even I thought he would be, and, and I was pretty high mm. on his athleticism. Uh, and the yeah. defense is very, very real. Like, he knows how to buy in on that end of the floor. He's toolsy. He's long. Yeah. He's physical. I just, I, th- I think he checks so many boxes of being just a high-impact role player who still has that ceiling to continue to tap into more kind of self-creation and, and really good playmaking on the offensive end. Okay. The rookie I want to point to that I think has been fun outside of maybe, maybe one game. I, I think that Dale and Terry played pretty poorly, but I've really liked what Dale and Terry has shown from, uh, especially over the course of his last two games for Chicago uh, in terms of athleticism, pushing the tempo, uh, getting his guys just like kind of organized in a real way for a teenager has been very impressive. Like you saw the reporting from Darnell Mayberry at the athletic where like they got their ass handed to them in one game. I believe it was against Dallas. Does that sound right to you? Maybe. Yeah. It was either the first. Remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was their second game. It was just like an epic fucking beating. And he was the one on the sidelines, just like, guys, we got to get going. Like, 
we can't just sit here and get our asses handed to us every single like minute of this game. And that's the kind of stuff that really stands out in terms of a guy that's going to be an energy giver, going to be someone that you really buy into. I've liked his overall decision-making for the most part. I think he's been really, really good uh, handling the ball on the wing, making uh, pretty good, effective reads, making good decisions to not take bad shots, especially over the course of the last couple of games. I think he's figured out some things throughout the course of summer league uh, in an impressive way that I, I, I always look for beginning of summer league, what you look like to the end of summer league. Yeah. What do you look like? And Dale and Terry, I think, has shown a lot of growth from that first and second game to the third and fourth game, where you can see even in that like four game stretch, it seems like things have slowed down just like a little bit for him uh, to where he can be more effective making decisions. Yeah. And I think there was also an adjustment made a little bit on the Bulls part of moving him to more of a secondary playmaker type of guy as the summer league went on. Like I think games one and two, they just wanted to roll the ball out to him and see everything yeah. he can do. Like not necessarily his role, not a standstill creator out of the pick and roll. He needs movement. He needs momentum. He thrives in transition. He loves to get it yeah. off of the handoff and get into the paint and use that momentum to his advantage. Chicago's put him in that situation a little bit more. He's looked a hell of a lot better. Like there were some turnover issues. I think he was adjusting to the, you know, the, the space, the physicality, in those first two initial games. But like you said, you want to see growth. He is starting to figure it out. He's really putting a lot together in terms of, you know, his understanding of what he needs to do to impact the game for his team. The other guy that I want to point to is Peyton Watson. Uh, Peyton Watson had like the one monster game uh, for Denver where I think Kamigate played really well. Christian Brown was like effective within his role, but Peyton Watson, he had like 19 points, eight rebounds, just looked so comfortable, looked more comfortable in that game than he did at any point at UCLA this past year. Uh, just getting to his spots, getting to the mid range. That's particularly mm-hmm. where he's most effective as a scorer right now. Good yeah. passing plays just hard defensively, man. Like he brings it every single night here. Uh, not here. Cause they're not in Melbourne, but uh, at summer league uh, in Las Vegas, I, I really have liked what I've seen from Peyton Watson. I do think he's probably still a project that doesn't really play much this year especially given the fact that Denver's going to have Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, Nikola Jokic. Like, that's a team that's going to be trying to compete for a title. Peyton Watson probably doesn't play a lot. But Peyton, what they've seen from him, I think they should be very happy with at this point. Well, and and it's flashes from a guy like him, right? Like, that's all you're looking for because you don't expect him to come in and just be an incredible guy from day one. You want to see what the high ceiling is, and you also want to see kind of the the lowest flourish parts so that you know what to work on, what to prioritize, and have those film points to go back and sit down with him and say, this is what you did this time. This is what you need to learn from it. And there have been a lot of positive flashes from guys, right? Like J.D. Davison erupted a little bit earlier today for the Boston Celtics and had a really, really good showing, yeah. 19 points in the first half. Like he was a guy that a lot of people were down on in this draft process. You know, Bryce McGowan's has had a couple of explosions out there. Like a, a second-year guy, Santi Aldama, went for 30, you know, a, a day ago. Like Blake Wesley is having highs and lows and going through this process. And, and, and I've – really appreciated all of these guys in different flashes, but they're just that they're flashes. Um, I think it's great to see the high points and what guys bring to the table, but 
for guys like Peyton Watson or J.D. Davis and those who were written off a little bit, like this is a really strong vindication point for them, that there is an NBA player in there worth investing in and trying to, to flesh out. And uh, I'm really happy for Peyton Watson that he's been playing so well for Denver. The other one is Josh Minot uh, yeah. with Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, I have some real concerns on that jumper. I am very skeptical of it at this point still, but he's found ways to make impacts so far beyond the jumper. He's cutting his just overall intelligence of knowing where to go uh, on the basketball court. It's just been very impressive. He, he's been very, very impressive. That first game obviously got a lot of, uh, a lot of hype because I think he went for 25 points and it was like probably more than he scored in any two games combined at Memphis this year, but just a a smart athletic player who fits where the NBA is going. uh, As long as the jumper comes along, we'll see if the jumper comes along uh, at a continued level, but all of the signs, all of the flashes, I mean, Minnesota has to be ecstatic there. Yep. Yeah. And then another shout out to Jabari Walker for Portland. Uh, I thought. Oh, he, yes. He, he's, How, he's, you have to shout out Jabari Walker. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's been great. Like, uh, you know, I should have mentioned Caleb Houston in the discussion of guys who are vindicating themselves a little bit, having yeah. you know, a little bit written off. Like both those guys played themselves into long-term contracts just by being ready to go. Like their motors both have been really high. Houston able to hit shots and play with confidence on that end. And Jabari Walker does all of the little things that you look for in kind of a a connector piece in the front court there. So really good to see some of those second round guys emerge. Like I'm not going to make the Herb Jones comparison with Jabari because I think Herb is much more instinctual on the defensive end in ways that you can't really teach. But like what he is doing now in the summer league fits incredibly well in a role next to Damian Lillard and Jeremy Grant and whatever it is that you need on that team. Where as a rookie, if you need to come in and play eight to 12 minutes off the bench, no problem. And then work to expand that role as the season goes on and you get more comfortable with where you fit in the offense. But uh, those are two guys in the second round that have just really, uh, I've been pleased with. Well, in, in Portland's case, you can compare and contrast what Jabari Walker does with what Greg Brown does, right? Like Jabari, these two guys were both athletic second round picks um, projects to some extent, although Jabari is showing that he's not really much of a project. Um, Jabari just knows where to be. And Greg still doesn't really have that idea at this point. Um, Greg is still just trying to like, make things happen with his athleticism. Whereas Jabari Walker is using his athleticism in intelligent ways, um, putting pressure on defenders uh, in back cuts and in 45 cuts, um, spacing the floor at a reasonable level. He, he knows how to play at a really uh, effective in an effective role. That's going to help uh it's going to help Portland, I think, at some point this year. Yeah. I, I bet you he has like a 10-game stretch where he plays 20 minutes a night and is like relatively effective. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and I think like Keon Ellis for Sacramento has been quietly really good, knocking down shots, playing really good defense. Like There, there are these guys around the margins who always pop up and present themselves. And, and for me, I look for two things. One, the scalability in their role on an NBA floor. You know, Is this something we're seeing now that they can and will be asked to do on an NBA floor in the regular season. And yeah. and the second thing from it is really the the consistency with how it matches up to what we saw pre-draft, right? Like if, if a guy shot 20% from three and then all of a sudden he's, you know, eight of 16 in the summer league, how much do you really buy that sample to depend on him once training camp opens in September and October? 
I think that the, the consistency of that end, as well as knowing exactly how it fits, are two areas I'm always looking for. Like Houston, Caleb Houston definitely has that. Uh, Jabari Walker definitely has that. And I think to some extent, Keon Ellis for Sacramento has been really good at showing, hey, this is how I'm going to earn my minutes, and I can consistently do this on a night-to-night basis. Okay. I don't think I want to keep you much longer than an hour. We've gone and had some fun here. Maybe I'll do a bit more of a breakdown on some of the older guys at Summer League on a different show next week um, when Summer League ends officially and mercifully for some people that have been in Las Vegas for a week plus at this point. Uh, I have done, have you, what's the longest you've ever stayed in Las Vegas? Oh, uh, 24 hours. I've been to Las Vegas once. I've never made it out to a summer league because I'm always recruiting or coaching and doing something yeah. with my own teams here. So the schedule is always pretty tough for me to get out there. Uh, I've only been once. It was 24 hours. Hopped in, hopped out, had a great time, um, sweat through every pair of clothes that I had with me for the trip and just <laughs> said, you know what? I, uh, I don't know if I need to be out here again unless there's basketball and a good business purpose to be in here. Yeah, so... I did the summer league. I did back half of summer league into recruiting weekend in Vegas uh, that used to occur. I don't think it really occurs anymore. Unfortunately, Um, it used to be like the last weekend of July or maybe midweek. It'd go peach jam and then Vegas basically. And and that's Um, when I was there was for kind of one night through the, the tail end of that. Yeah. Uh, I did 10 straight days. <laughs> it was so, seriously any young basketball writer that is thinking, Oh yeah. Like I'm just going to go, I'm going to meet so many people. It's going to be such a great time. Uh, you know, I'm going to go for like 10 days. It's going to be great. Don't do it. Yeah. Trust me on this for the love of God, save yourself. Do not do 10 days in Las Vegas. Do not do more than, I get I get sick of it after five. Um, I really get sick of it after three, but I get to the point where I can't really manage it anymore after five. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's good advice for me in the future in case I do end up getting out there for something. Like I'm a book forty eight to seventy two hours. Enjoy my time, meet as many people as I can, and then get home and recharge my batteries and some air conditioning. That's yeah, that's, the that's what you do. That's what you got to do. Okay, Adam, uh, have you watched any good movies? Since you uh you've gotten married recently, congratulations first and foremost. Thank you. But you, you know, well, you've gone on, I believe, a little mini honeymoon, right? Yep. Yeah, got yep. married, did a honeymoon, moved into a new house, which you can see the beautiful background here. We have everything set up in the recording studio so far. The hashtag uh, spin studio. <laughs> we uh, you know, not as much of a movie guy as I am a TV show guy, and I know oh, we, we we talked about it a little bit. I uh, I just finished watching Succession. Uh, about two or three days ago and really, really good show. So that's one. And I can't contribute too much on the movie conversation. Um, I'm not quite Matt Penny there, but uh, really enjoyed diving into succession a little bit more like really well-written show. I think each character, each character just comes to life and pops and you get invested in seeing the, the growth of each character, even though you recognize they're all horrible freaking human people um like you want to root against them but you want to root for them all it's it's a fascinating dynamic as you watch but really really well done show uh, and kind of you know leaving us on a cliffhanger here waiting for the next season i don't have you gotten through the the last season oh totally yeah, yeah. my wife and i watch it like every like when it comes out yeah it's the best um 
I'm trying to think movie wise. My wife and I have gone down a rabbit hole of like horror movies as usual. Yeah. Um, we watched we watched a movie called The Queen of Black Magic, which is an Indonesian horror movie by one of the Mo brothers. Uh, I believe it's Kimo Stambul. Uh, and just an incredibly fucked up fun ride, like a haunted house horror fucked up movie. Uh, incredibly fun. We also saw Thor, uh, which is incredibly the the hatred that that movie has gotten i i don't understand like i get that people want the marvel thing to move forward sometimes you can just sit back and enjoy like a fun movie where like there is a bit in that movie that made me laugh no fewer than 20 times um i'm not joking i laughed at the same bit 20 times and i hate myself for it and i don't care it is incredible. Uh, the movie is fun. It looks great. Um, the colorization's incredible. I think the way it's shot is incredible. Yeah, all around. Go see Thor: Love and Thunder. It's a fun movie. Like, just go have fun. Yeah. People. I, um, I got a text yesterday saying that I I haven't seen it yet, but I need to go watch the new Top Gun movie, and I need to see it in theaters. That it's a great watching experience there. That's yes. that's first on the list for me. I know I need to get to that, and like. I agree with you. Movies are about kind of having fun sometimes and, and not just going for the cinematic breakdown and the detailing uh, of the, the analysis of how everything is put together. Like go and have an enjoyable movie watching experience. I still enjoy going and seeing all the James Bond films when they come out. Like that's, that's been one that oh, yeah. my dad and I used to do when I was younger. So there's, there's always nostalgia going into the theater and watching one of those. But um, I mean, I, I got to get to Top Gun. I've heard a lot of good things yeah. about that. Yeah, like, look, I just watched, like, Mikey and Nikki, uh, which is, like, this old mid-70s movie by Elaine May about, like, these two gangsters, like, and it's, like, a character study of gangsters and uh, just their relationship. And I can break down Mikey and Nikki and talk about how it's, like, this beautiful portrayal of friendship and, um, you know, those, like, toxic people in your life and all of that stuff. Or I can watch Top Gun and have a blast when the planes go zoom like i'm (laughs) i'm good with doing both but sometimes we have to take products for what they are and thor love and thunder is super fun and funny and enjoyable and top gun is planes go fast zoom zoom and i don't care about anything else that happens in the movie it's just super fun and I have increasingly turned into a guy who likes TV shows and movies to be like the time I switch my brain to 50% power for yeah. a little bit of time. Like uh, I'm doing a, a, enough throughout the day. I don't need to be sitting here psychoanalyzing every character decision for an hour and a half when I'm watching film, uh, you know, yeah. for five, six hours a day before that. So, um, yeah. you know, I'm enjoying the TV shows we're diving into. If there are any recommendations from you, from anybody else who listens to game theory, like please hit me up for some other TV shows to watch because this summer, I'm I'm looking for some things to binge. Have you done severance yet? No. Yeah. My wife and I are midway through severance right now. It's just one season so far. It's very interesting. Yeah. I I would say severance would be one. That's Apple, right? Apple. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There it is. Okay. Spins, tell the people where they can find you on the internet. Tell the people where they can find your work. 
Well, Sam, first off, thank you. Thank you for having me on here. Always uh, a blast to be talking hoops and making it through all the emergency calls, all the dogs on the lap. Like we, we got to the finish line here today. You uh, did. We, we did. Uh, find I'm me- pretty sure my dog like ran out of the room at one point to go pee somewhere in my house. So I'm going to like go out here soon and find where my dog peed. So it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, find me on the box in one underscore at on Twitter. And then uh, Adam Spinella is named the YouTube channel. And then our Substack, theboxin1.substack.com, has a lot of written form content coming out right now, trying to do some different projects over the summer, some look aheads to some high school film on guys that are going to be in potentially the 2023 draft class, as well as something I really enjoy doing, retro scouting reports, where mm-hmm. we go back and look at some prospects over the last five to 10 years who, um, you know, just do another video breakdown of them and see what their college film was like, how we would have graded them if they were around now and try to analyze what's changed in their game. I really enjoy doing that series. Um, so if anyone in there is as much of a, uh, a draft loser as me, then go ahead and dive into some of that stuff. But uh, yeah, summer's a fun time because you can kind of do what you want and set the agenda for, you know, where things are going to be once basketball season ramps up. So uh, trying to get a good balance between work and life right now. But uh, again, thank you for for having me on here, Sam. We'll do this anytime you ask me to. <laughs> well, we just, you just did the Rocco Zakarski uh, video and I still haven't watched enough of Rocco yet. Um, I've gotten told by good friend of the program over here, Chris Anstey, uh, former, you know, first overall pick with the Mavericks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he has told me to watch Rocco like five or six times and I still uh, haven't done it. And now that he's played in the U 17s, I have no excuse. I used to not be able to find tape on him, but now there's like a lot of tape on Rocco that I need to get through. Uh, So I would encourage everyone to go watch Adam's tape on Rocco Zakarski, which I still haven't watched yet even because I want to make my own assessment here before watching anything that Adam has published yet. Um, podcast you know go to the youtube channel watch the breakdown that i did with amen and Asor thompson i uh, listen to the bit of audio i did with caitlin cooper that you know quickly became the hottest audio on the internet when uh the pacers decided to sign deandre ayton to an offer sheet and then quickly flamed out a little bit when uh they decided to ma- the suns decided to match so uh keep it locked here And we will have some great content moving forward. But until next time, we'll talk soon.